you can look back and see President Wilson's example. You know, when he distanced himself from reporters, uh, when he when he tried to use Baker as just a spokesperson and not as a conduit to the press, you know, that really had negative effects on his overall agenda. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by the College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. For more than a century, the college has educated students to relentlessly pursue the art, science, and integrity of stories. They are committed to following First Amendment principles in a digital-first environment as they prepare democracy's next generation. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org podcast. Long before Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Jen Psaki took the podium at the White House, President Woodrow Wilson called upon a soft-spoken journalist named Ray Stannard Baker to promote his vision of post-war peace to the American press. Baker had been a muckraking reporter in Chicago, covering labor unions, writing exposés on the railroad industry, and starting a progressive magazine with Lincoln Steffens and Ida Tarbell. Then he heard Wilson's rhetoric about spreading democracy across the globe after World War I, and he began a secret mission for the State Department that turned into a job directing Wilson's press bureau during the Paris Peace Conference. Historians have usually agreed that Herbert Hoover had the first full-time White House press secretary. But new research argues that Baker deserves this distinction, and that his efforts to build a rapport with journalists epitomized the role of a press secretary in a democracy. On this episode of the Journalism History Podcast, we examine Baker's legacy with Megan Menard McCune, a PhD student in media and public affairs at Louisiana State University. Well, Megan, thank you for joining me today. We're here to discuss research that you conducted with a previous guest, actually, on the Journalism History Podcast, John Maxwell Hamilton. He appeared on episode 86 last summer to discuss his book, Manipulating the Masses, that was about the propaganda spread during World War I by President Woodrow Wilson's Committee on Public Relations. And President Wilson is at the heart of our conversation today, too. We'll be discussing a journalist who you argue was, in effect, Wilson's press secretary and, indeed, the nation's first presidential press secretary, Ray Stannard Baker. A little background here to start us off. Baker grew up in Wisconsin in the late 1800s. He went to college in Michigan. And then he moved to Chicago in 1892 to become a reporter. This was a time, you write, of rapid change in journalism from 1870 to 1909. The number of daily newspapers jumped from 574 to 2600. And total circulation reached more than 24 million. So Baker worked at the Chicago Record and then McClure's Magazine. Can we start out by talking about his first few decades as a reporter before he meets Wilson? What's that like? Okay, great. Um, yeah, so Baker is a really interesting, interesting character. And I think one of the keys to understanding him is that he was really always striving for understanding. He called himself a maker of understanding. That's how he saw his role as a journalist. Um, 
And as you mentioned, he was born in the 1870s in the Midwest. And so he lived through a lot of significant moments of American history. And so his journey is kind of tracking his, um, his effort to understand these changing moments in American history and how he kind of fit into, um, into his new role. Um, and so when he started out as a reporter, he was really interested in labor issues, but he didn't, he never painted anything as, as simple. You know, he was always trying to find the complexity of issues. And I think that's really the key to understanding him. So he wasn't very quick to draw conclusions, um, uh, you know, just always after that um, search for understanding. And you describe him in the paper as soft-spoken, judicious, but kind of interesting here that as a journalist, he's getting political he supported Theodore Roosevelt in 1898. Then Roosevelt takes office and Baker feels that he's too weak on social reform. And then in 1916, Baker starts campaigning for Wilson. And he was apparently swept up by Wilson's rhetoric about making the world, quote unquote, safe for democracy. So what did Baker see in Wilson particularly? I think he saw um, really an answer to the issues of that progressives were focused on all these domestic issues and as, through his reporting of labor issues he saw wilson as really a champion to to um to some of those progressive reforms and he it's important to note that he had a big falling out with roosevelt when roosevelt um discredited in a way the muckrakers and um and of course baker saw muckraking as really important to theodore roosevelt's um agenda and he had often complimented uh, Baker's reporting. And so that really kind of, um, you know, uh, put a dent in their friendship. And, um, and so Baker was looking for someone else to support. And then along comes Wilson. And he had a, um, uh, you know, Baker was able to interview Wilson before um, the, uh, the 1916, I mean, for the 1912 um, election. And he really found in Wilson what he was missing from his relationship in, with Roosevelt. And interesting here, because we're going to get into that relationship that a journalist might have of a politician that certainly there's different standards for today than there may have been back then. And this goes right to the point of in February 1918, Baker begins a nearly year-long mission as a special assistant to the Department of State. While he's still presenting himself as a journalist, he traveled to Europe to assess the outlook of the liberal and labor groups that Wilson needed for a cooperative peace. Um, he's acting under what you call in your paper a kind of plan for camouflage because he's ostensibly a correspondent during this trip for the New Republic and the New York world, but he's not writing for publication. And as a former reporter myself, I'm reading this being struck by the fact that someone in profession now known for neutrality, you wouldn't be taking sides of a certain politician, is not only campaigning for Wilson, but then he represents Wilson abroad and he's misrepresenting himself as a correspondent when he's not really writing as a correspondent. So maybe you can parse some of that for us. It's obviously something that would be considered ethically unacceptable today, but how did Baker get away with that in his time? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I, this uh, kind of ties into how we came across and how we started this research. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Dr. Hamilton wrote um, the book Manipulating the Masses on Wilson and the CPI. And so he discusses Baker's role in Paris then. Um, and But also how Baker gets involved in Paris is that he was on the secret mission with the State Department. Um, and so my dissertation research looks at Baker and, and other journalists who filled these roles. 
where I call them government agents. They were, um, in, in some cases, they worked behind the scenes. In some cases, they worked public, publicly for the government. Um, but Baker is really an interesting case because he continued his, um, I mean, he, 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 um, he was not reporting, right? He was acting as a reporter. And that, um, that camouflage, plan of camouflage, actually gave him tremendous access. Um, and so he was able to get interviews and talk to people um, and, and um, in different positions of power in order to report back for the government. And I think, you know, it certainly was the, the lines of um, the ethical lines that we've drawn today for journalists are cer- were certainly not drawn then. And there was a lot of, of blurriness there with the relationship between government and the press. Um, and so these lines were, were crossed. And I think it was certainly um, the effect of war, right? Total war where everyone is is um, feeling that they have to contribute to the war effort. Um, but for Baker, it was also goes back to this idea that he is a maker of understanding. At first, when um, when the when the U.S. entered the war, you know, a lot of progressives were um were against this, right? They they wanted to stay home and focus on their domestic reform. They thought that the war would be a distraction to that. They a lot of them were swept up in this and Wilsonian rhetoric of a war to make, um, you know, war to make the world safe for democracy. And for Baker, he he didn't see him he didn't see a role for himself at the beginning of the war. But then he he really saw that he could fill this need as a maker of understanding. He thought that, you know, he had tremendous faith in Wilson's plan for peace and um, his fourteen points. And so he felt that with, um, you know, with with getting information, right, with publicity, even though it wasn't widespread publicity, publicity to the the Wilson administration, he could um, ultimately make a make, um, uh, you know, help the, help the administration in their effort that he had, you know, really a lot of respect and hope for. Yeah, you have this quote in the piece that you wrote when Baker was writing in March 1906 in McClure's. He's doing this expose on the railroad publicity machine. And he says, quote, the more true publicity there is, the better for the public mind should not only be made up, but made up right. And you describe how he has this reverence for publicity, which has a different meaning today. It's kind of used in maybe more of a negative connotation of self-promotion or somehow shamelessly spreading a misinformation about yourself or your company. But back then it had a kind of a respect for the public. Uh, so then his Baker special assignment ends and he moves into the role that's at the crux of the research, really, we're going to be talking about. He had spent nearly a year in Europe, and he was eager to return home to Massachusetts. But Wilson offers him the publicity position in Paris, and Baker describes how he has, quote, many misgivings about the position. He thought he lacked the executive and semi-political qualifications for this job. But ultimately, we know he accepts it. So why did he do that? I think he accepted, well, he accepted it first after a meeting with, with Wilson. So he, um, he has a discussion with Wilson's advisor, Edward, um, uh, Colonel Edward M. House. Um, and he kind of shares his misgivings, you know, he really did want to return home. He was, he was on the job for an extended period of time where he was traveling all over Europe. Um, and so they tell him, you know, him, uh, uh, House and other advisors tell him to go talk to Wilson. And so in this meeting, he is um, really convinced by Wilson's uh, plan that, um, you know, this is this a historic moment, right? And he had an, he had an opportunity to play a role here. Um, and then again, he could be kind of this maker of understanding. He could, um, you know, act as not, o- not only a spokesperson, spokesperson for Wilson, but really an advocate for the press. And so he takes this role with reservations. 
In December 1918, right after he started, he writes in his diary. It's also great, by the way, you have so much of his diary in here. And so it's not often that we get to hear directly from people at the moment as they're mulling these different decisions and really voicing the misgivings that we otherwise would know about. So it's terrific that your paper includes so much of that. But he writes in his diary in December 1918, quote, never busier in my life, getting the new publicity department underway. So describe for us what was keeping him so busy? What were some of the main projects and objectives he had for Wilson? So he he had 150 American correspondents in Paris that he was in charge of, of managing. And um, so it's a huge, huge amount of a, a big group and a lot of different uh, responsibilities. Um, so he was in charge of communicating with the commission um, and trying to get news out of Wilson. And then um, he was also working with very uh, news hungry reporters and they were having trouble, especially at first getting news. Um, and so he's setting up an office. He, um, you know, he's expecting a lot of a lot of reporters to call him and to, you know, um, uh uh, you know, keep on trying to get news. And so he's he's aware that the reporters are going to be a big issue for him. But actually, what turns out ha- what what ends up happening is that Wilson was the greater detriment to his to him um, fulfilling his role um, that he had so much hope for. Well, then let's get into that relationship between Baker and Wilson. As you said, you know, Baker has reservations and frustrations over the limits that Wilson's imposing on his work. At one point, Baker writes in his diary, he, referring to Wilson, depends on publicity for his support and power, and yet he dreads publicity. Meanwhile, you say, later in the paper, Wilson seems to like Baker for the most part. He described him in one letter as a man of ability, vision, and ideals. Of course, what he's saying publicly might be different than what he feels internally. So what of that relationship with a give and go between Wilson being reluctant maybe to talk to the press, reveal information, and Baker as a former journalist, understanding that this publicity is the way to maybe advance Wilson's agenda? Right. So I think there was a lot of tension there. Um, You know, Wilson had a long history of kind of a strained relationship with the press, even before he got into or right when he got into the White House, really. Um, He starts um, by by weekly press conferences when he enters the White House and then, you know, finds excuses to to end those. Um, You know, for Wilson, he liked kind of lecturing from the podium and really disliked the kind of um, the smaller, more intimate relationships with journalists, um, with the journalistic press corps. He really regretted that some of the things he would say would be um, published before any final decision was made. So for Wilson, the press should publicize already, you know, made decisions. Um, But for Baker, you know, Baker saw as a journalist himself, saw tremendous value in publicizing ongoing negotiations and how decisions are made. And of course, he knew that's what reporters were most interested in in Paris. Um, You know, he mentions many times in his diary that he, um, you know, challenged Wilson to to meet with the press, you know, often told him, you know, and, and convinced him that sharing information with the press would help him. And so he was um, able to do this on at least a few occasions where he was able to kind of pull information out of Wilson and convince him that, you know, the press can can be helpful here and we need to use the press. For, for Baker, the press was what he called um, ambassadors of public opinion. You know, they were there really fulfilling a democratic role in Paris. And so um, to not use this resource was was what was, um, you know, a great failure in, in Baker's eyes. Well, and I've mentioned now a few times Baker's diary. 
we can understand maybe where you'd be able to pick up some of the publications that were covering Wilson at the time. You'd be able to find those in the archives and the work that Baker had done for McClure's, for example, is I'm sure available somewhere, but you have a lot of this great primary sourcing. Can you just discuss a little bit, like, where did you find all of this information? How did you get such great insights into what these men were thinking at the time? So I think one of the great things and what I've re- learned with, through my dissertation research, especially, was that one of the great things about setting journalists is that they leave so much writing behind. And Paker um, was just, um, I mean, he wrote all the time. He had numerous diaries. He wrote books. I mean, um, many, many articles. Um, so, um, you know, having access to that material uh, really did, like you said, it just gives you some insight into what they're thinking, um, you know, as they're going through this this time. And, um and for Baker, you know, he was very self-aware and you can kind of see that in his diary. You know, he's very self-reflective. And so he really does, um, you know, uh, question some of the decisions he makes and kind of lays out his thinking process. And so it's really helpful as a researcher to be able to read through this. And so now we're talking about the relationship that Baker had with Wilson, but also his relationship then with these reporters, his former brethren, who now he's having to deal with their grievances. And very early in his time as press secretary, I guess about a month in, on January 12, 1919, Wilson met with leaders from France, Britain, and Italy behind a soundproof door. And the meeting ended and Baker received only a single sentence statement about what was discussed. You describe it in the paper as virtually worthless, just a list of three general topics that the leaders talked about, no details about what was said or which decisions were made. And the correspondents are understandably angry about this. They already knew that, I guess, Wilson had this kind of testy or weird relationship with the press. So they're alert to this. So how did Baker try to smooth that over and then interact with either Wilson or the reporters and eventually try to build more of a rapport with the press corps? Yeah, so to, to Baker's credit, you know, he really did focus on building that trust with reporters. Um, you know, in one of in a letter that he wrote to a friend in 1921, a few years after the conference, he says that what he'd really tried to do in Paris was to do, quote, the real work of publicity. And for Baker, that meant getting out as much information as he possibly could to to, you know, as far as he was permitted to do. Um, so he held brief, he held uh, briefings with correspondence every day. Um, and and in, the, and in one of the first uh, meetings, he promised them that he would be trustworthy. Um, you know, he included in his diary a paragraph that he had given to his reporter that he had told the reporters. And he said, you know, quote, I'm not going to lie to you. So that was one of the first things that he told the reporters. Um, and he and he was very frank with them. If I'm if I have information that I can tell you, I will tell you. Um, and if I don't think I can tell you, I'll tell you that I don't think I can tell you this information. So he was very upfront with, with the reporters and very transparent. I mean, he, he knew that there were members in the press corps that disliked Wilson. Um, but he, and he knew there were some that were favorable to Wilson, but he knew for both of those groups, the best way would be to, um, to be trustworthy and to be transparent. And so that, to his credit, that is really what he, what he worked to do. Um, and as far as with Wilson and the other leaders, you know, he really did push back on some of their, um, on some of their, uh, um, efforts to kind of limit journalist access. And one of the greater, I think, um, examples of this was when the leaders decided to bar reporters, um, or not bar, but they decided to kind of limit the access that reporters had to the ceremony that um, 
the ceremony in which uh, Germany was given the treaty. Um, and so, uh, so this meeting was in, in May, uh, 1919. And so, um, when Baker saw where they were going to put the press correspondence, he was just shocked that they were kind of in the quote dugouts, which is what some of the correspondents were calling the area. And so he went and he talked to, um, he talked to Wilson. Um, he arranged a meet, a meeting and, um, they ultimately, the leaders ultimately traveled to Versailles to see the, uh, the area where the reporters were going to be. And, uh, um, and in the end he actually won greater access for those reporters to that ceremony. You're getting into actually the point that I was going to ask you about next, or what were some of his accomplishments mm -hmm. as press secretary since he's facing such an obstacle and Wilson himself sometimes being resistant to the change here. Uh, you conclude the paper by noting that Baker didn't realize as much as he would have wanted his progressive vision of serving the public interest of worldwide publicity because Wilson wasn't earnestly engaged in that process. But he does have some achievements here, right? Because he meets with Wilson every evening, hoping to gather information that he can pass along to reporters. He does convince Wilson to leak information on occasion. So as you look back on Baker's legacy overall as press secretary, what are some of those accomplishments? Yeah, this is great. I think that one of the... Um... One of the trends we see in some of the literature is that uh, there's an effort, you know, maybe to just kind of bypass or um, or downplay Baker's role. And for a few very good reasons. One was that there was a media blackout in Paris. Um, there was, you know, uh, very limited access for reporters. The um, the leaders of the conference barred reporters from uh, closed door negotiations and a limited negotiate limited discussions that leaders could have with the press about those discussions. And so. Um, so what Baker, um, what, what, what we argue in the paper is that Baker actually did have some successes, right? And even despite this media blackout, despite Wilson's distance from reporters, he um, he really did, you know, as we mentioned, kind of tried to build a trustful, you know, a relationship with reporters based on trust. Um, he pushed back on a lot of the efforts uh, with the leaders and especially with Wilson. Um, he was also innovative. And I think one of the prime examples of this is that he, uh, before the negotiations really got started, there was a lot of reporters in Paris looking for news and without much to report. And Baker kind of noticed that some of the European reporters were able to kind of discuss the background of issues um, and, and were able to kind of write up what kind of discussions, uh, negotiations might be coming and how that might play with the, with historical background information. So, um, so what Baker did was he got experts that were um, involved in the American Peace Commission. He got them to write um, briefing papers about some of the decisions that would, you know, that would come up, some of the negotiations that were um, were at play in in the negotiations, and then he distributed those to um, to the correspondents. So this was a way to really get them some information, some news, something to to write and talk about, um, and and he found tremendous success with those briefing papers. Well, and so there's a few different values here to the research that you've done. One is just, it's really interesting to learn the nuances of how Baker is interacting with Wilson and the press corps and in any press secretary, how they interact with uh, the reporters and with the president. But specifically with your paper, there's this larger, broader argument that your research is significant because 
Baker was the first presidential press secretary. So can you describe why is that important? What contribution are you making here to the literature about press secretaries? Yeah, so um, so so to go back a, b- a little bit, uh, George Ackerson of the Herbert Hoover administration is often identified as kind of in effect the first press secretary. Um, he briefed rep- reporters daily, and he was seen as a spokesperson uh, for the president. And then the first person to officially have that title was uh, Stephen Early in the Franklin and Franklin Roosevelt administration. So we argue, though, really that that Baker deserves this title um, because he was the first full time presidential press secretary. Um, and so a few reasons that he deserves this title. One, he was working uh, full-time in, in, um, in press relations. He was a personal intermediary with the press. And this really distinguishes him from presidential secretaries in previous administrations who maybe interacted with the press from time to time. So, and there, were, and there was a lot of um, individuals in Wilson's orbit who interacted with the press. Wilson's secretary, for example, you know, often met with the press, tried to manage press, but he also had tremendous other amount of responsibilities, right? Those That was not his full-time job. So when Baker's hired, that is his full-time job is, is press relations. And he is seen as a spokesperson um, for the president. And he, um, he did a lot of the things that we consider, you know, what the role of press secretary today. He wrote and publicized statements on the president's behalf. He held daily re- briefings with reporters. He traveled with the president. Um, he distributed conference session passes to journalists. Um, and he met with the president and other commission leaders um, to stay informed and to pass along information with reporters. So definitely an original new contribution to the research, and we appreciate what you're adding there. I wonder then, if you look at the press secretaries since Baker, what sort of conclusions you draw? I noted earlier you said that Baker told the reporters, I'm not going to lie to you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've heard that a lot from press secretaries <laughs> over the years. Uh And we've also had a lot of press secretaries who have dabbled in journalism before they came into the role. We had Jay Carney more recently Mm -hmm. with President Obama. And then we had a lot of people who maybe were uh, not involved in journalism before, but they used the platform of being the White House press secretary to then land a lot of media opportunities. And we have people in recent years from the Trump administration, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Kaylee McEnany, who we, you know, had seen maybe already kind of here and there as surrogates in the media, but certainly ended up going on book tours and having a much larger media platform after their time in the White House. So what kind of conclusions did you draw about how the press secretary role has evolved over the years since Baker? Yeah, so I think one of the um, important points of Baker's um, role here is that he set an exceptional example as the first to have this position, we argue. You know, he really saw the role as a democratic position, right? He he really handled it as not just a spokesperson for the president, but he saw himself as an advocate for the press. Um, and so I think that's important to remember. And kind of what we argue is that, um, you know, for, for presidents, especially, you know, if you can look back and see President Wilson's example, you know, when he distanced himself from reporters, um, when he when he tried to use Baker as just a spokesperson and not as a conduit to the press, you know, that really had negative effects on his overall agenda. You know, the treaty was not ratified. And a lot of scholars attribute that to his distance from the press in Paris. Um, so so one of the, um, you know, primary legacies that a president can leave is, of course, an um, appreciation for the democratic role. And and one of and, and the key to that is transparency. And so for, for us, for, you know, what we argue here is that Baker 
because of that exceptional role, he can stand as um, as an example um, for 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 press secretaries um, in the future. And we thank you for adding him into that conversation where maybe he's been excluded in the past. And the point that you make to close your uh, piece here, that public servants can leave no better legacy than respect for democracy, as you just said, this transparency. So as we wrap up today's episode, given the context of what we've been talking about, I'd like to pose a question to you that we ask all of our guests on the Journalism History Podcast. Why does journalism history matter? That's a great question. And I think that, um, and one we, we always need to, to try to answer in various ways. And I think when, when I think about historical research, I think that, you know, the, the, the main goal is to answer that. So what question? So, so, um, and, and the way we do that, I think, or we're by answering that. So what question we often see patterns, um, in the past that can, um, sometimes contribute to insights into the future and to contemporary issues. So I think if we're if we're focusing on this so what question, we can go back and we can we can ask, you know, what is why what uh, you know what's the point of Baker? Well, why does it matter that Baker was the first press secretary? And I think we can come back to that example that he set. Um, and and really, you know, we can see Baker in 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 some of the trends that were ongoing during this time, right? So he's he's an example of the hope and optimism that journalists felt when they got to Paris. You know, um, Michael Shudson says that. Um, war is good for generals as it is for journalists. And a lot of these journalists came to Paris with the end of wartime censorship, thinking that, you know, this was really going to be a time for um, uh, a time for publicity and a time for transparency and a new diplomacy. And then they are kind of disillusioned. And, um, and Baker really kind of tries to hold that, sh- shows us that pattern, that pattern evolving, you know, where he comes to Paris really advocating for a democratic role of the press secretary where he, where he tries to really fill that role. And he does so very well. But in the end, it's this, um, this kind of backward trend toward um, closed-door negotiations that really limit his ability to fill that role. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for contributing this terrific article to our discussion. Uh, We appreciate the time today on the Journalism History Podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in. And additional thanks to our sponsor, the College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at JHistoryJournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hershon. Signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.